The young man came in carrying fruit, and he placed it in a bowl that was on a pedestal. He bowed down and then got up shortly after that, and he began to walk to his left in a circular pattern and through a a door that was on that side. And in a few moments, he came out a door that was on the other side. It was identical, just mirror image. And as he came back around to where the bowl of fruit was, there was a, a bell that was suspended from the ceiling. And he rang the bell, and he continued the walk, perhaps seven times. I was seated, barefooted, in a Hindu temple in Durham, North Carolina. It was part of a seminary class, giving us exposure to other cultures, other religions. There was a Hindu priest there to help us to understand everything that was going on. And I'll try to share with you a little of what he shared with me. The man who came in was a devout worshiper. He was a Hindu. And he brought in the fruit as a gift to one of the gods. When I say one of the gods, in that building... There was, a, in a kind of a semicircle away from the bowl of fruit, there were a number of statues, all pristine, clean, brightly lit, had a garland or garlands of flowers uh, that were put around their, their necks. And again, I don't know which of the gods that this uh, young man bowed to. But then he began his trek. It's called, here's your word for the day, circumambulate. It literally means to walk in circles. It's kind of weird, isn't it? But now you've learned something. So let's try it together. Circumambulate, okay? So if you ever see anybody walking in circles, you can just walk up and say, hey, I notice you're circumambulating. Blow their minds. Okay. that's That's the official term. And what that person was doing was their, their, their God, the God that they were worshiping, was there among those. And they were circling that God, signifying that, that that God was the center. And their life was revolving around that God. And when they came around and he rang the bell, it was to gain the God's attention, but also as an act of worship. Now, one of the things that was interesting is among the 12 or so statues that were there, there may have been more, uh, it's been a couple of years, but on the far end, there were two statues, one of Buddha and the other of Jesus. Not the typical statue we think, Jesus in a seated position, much more Hindu in uh, in that arrangement. But there was Jesus tossed in among the other array of gods. This was a very devout worshiper who came in to pray, who came in to seek the favor of his God. And we were told, because we asked, how do, how do, you, how do you pick a god <laughs> out of this panoply of gods? How do you pick one? And we were told, quite frankly, from the Hindu priests that the person, you know, person will come in And they may have a particular God that they are worshiping. But if after a period of time that God doesn't answer their prayers, they may shift to another one and and then to another one. And so when when I tell you about this, it sounds kind of weird because that's not what you're used to. 
Okay? There are, only, there are only a couple of folks in here who would have any clue as to what's going on. Did I describe it pretty close? Okay, good. Okay. And so, again, that, that's a, for us, it is a, a completely different concept of what worship is and of who God is. And the only reason I bring that up to you today is not to say, hey, listen, I've been to a Hindu temple. The reason I bring it up is, is to let you know that when we read our passage from Exodus chapter 20 in a few minutes... When we read that, the context within which this occurred, the culture around the children of Israel was much closer to what the Hindu uh, method of worship and and having a multitude of gods and goddesses, it was much closer to that than what you and I tend to think of when we think about God and worship and religion and things like that. And so I'm going to try to pull you out of your common thinking to try to put you into where they were and the times. You see, they'd come out of Egypt. You remember they'd been in Egypt for 400 years. They'd been there for a long time. And so they'd gotten an opportunity to see everything that was taking place among the Egyptians. And in fact, some of them had begun to worship the same gods. The Egyptians had a multitude of gods, a God for this, a God for that, a God for the other thing. And a Pharaoh would ascend to the throne and he would take the throne and he would have his favorite God, the God he would worship. And he would build monuments to that God and he would call on the people to worship that God. And then he'd die and another Pharaoh would ascend. But he might have a different God. And so he would build monuments to that God. And, and you know, it, it just went on and on and on like that. And so that's the thinking. And in fact, the land that they were going to inherit, the promised land. When they went in there, they were going to find the same thing. A multitude of gods. Polytheism, not monotheism, not the worship of one God. But the worship of many gods. And many of them responded in the same way. If this God doesn't answer my prayers, I'll move to that God. And to this God. No less devout, no less religious. But this is the culture in which we find God speaking to his people. So you, you kind of got, got the, the culture in mind now? All right. Exodus chapter 20. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open there. And you can, uh, Exodus, you're easy to find. First book in the Bible is Genesis, not table of contents. First book is Genesis. Next book is Exodus, okay? If you get to Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you've gone a little bit too far, just back it up. Exodus chapter 20. And what I want to encourage you to do is you can stick your bulletin or something in there because we're going to be there this week and for nine weeks afterwards. So you can go ahead and mark your spot because we'll be coming back to this place. It'll be easier for you to find as we go through. And today we want to begin with the first of the commandments. So Exodus chapter 20, we're going to look together at verses 1 through 3. Here we go. It's not a long portion of scripture. And it says this, and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, when we look at a Bible passage like this, we not only want to know the, the context of the culture in which this was spoken. We also want to, we, we, we want to be careful that, that we don't remove it from that setting. And we also want to be careful because we know bits and pieces of scripture from here, there, and yonder. We also want to be careful that we don't take something from someplace else and bring it over and apply it to this. For instance, most of us, when we look at Exodus chapter 20 and we read the Ten Commandments, we assume Moses is standing there with his arms full of two tablets, right? That's not what's happening. This is before God carved the commandments 
into stone. God is actually speaking them. Do you see that? And God spoke all these words. A little bit different. And so I want you to, I want you to hear that because this is actually important. Usually, we, you know, we're reading a book and it said John said, and then it goes on. John said is kind of irrelevant. It just tells us who said it. But in this instance, what we're reading here is actually important for us to understand. And I want us to dig into it just a little bit this morning. Because when God is speaking, it's powerful. And so if you back up just a little bit into chapter 19, beginning with verse 16, this is what we read. On the morning of the third day, this is three months now after they left Egypt, three months and three days. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with thick clouds over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like the smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered. This is what we want to keep in mind. This this is the context of this verse. This is God speaking. And if you ever had in mind that God speaking was kind of like some old college professor just standing up in a dusty jacket and giving a boring lecture to the people seated out there, that blows us all away. God speaking, there's fire, there's smoke, and pardon me, Jerry Lee Lewis, but there was a whole lot of shaking going on. And the shaking wasn't just the mountain. Part of the shaking was the the children of Israel. They were shaking in their boots. Their knees were knocking together. They were literally terrified at this. How do I know that? If you go on further in chapter 20, picking up with verse 18, this is what we read. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Now, this tells you the level of fear. They're like, Moses, listen, you go check with God. You come back and tell us what he said, but we don't want to go through this again. We don't want to, hey, listen, this mountain shaking stuff, this smoke and fire business, we we don't need all that. This scares me. Do you realize I had to change my husband's diaper? You know, this was bad. This is scary. Now, we can understand that. It's like, okay, you stay away. Because it's scary. But how tragic is that? For the people to say, God, we don't want to hear you directly anymore. We're afraid to hear you directly. Give us someone between you and, and I. Between me. But that's, that's the context. And so when it says, you know, we read this and it says, and, and God spoke all these words, and we just kind of read through it. But if you go back and you kind of get the bigger picture, you realize that when God is speaking, these people have been through a lot. Think about it. They'd seen the plagues in Egypt. They'd seen the pillar of fire by day, the pillar of, uh, of cloud 
uh, pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day. They'd seen the Red Sea part. They crossed on it. They'd seen God provide manna six of the seven days of the week and enough on the sixth day to provide for the seventh. They'd seen uh, when they got hungry and complained, hey, we're kind of getting tired of this manna stuff. God sent quail down. They just came and sat in the camp. People just picked them up, scooped them up. So they had meat to eat. When they got thirsty and complained about that, God had uh, Moses take his staff and strike the rock and the water flowed from the rock and they had fresh water to drink. They'd seen all this stuff. So you would think, oh, well, you know, fire, smoke, shaking mountain, no biggie. And can I tell you, when God shows up, really shows up, there's awe. There's awe in his presence. Now, what I didn't read is there's a whole section that says, hey, prepare yourselves for this. Prepare yourselves for this. Prepare yourselves for this. I want to tell you, some of you come in on Sunday morning and you leave and you go, wow, there there was no wow factor there. There was no awe. There was no mystery. Part of the reasons is we don't prepare ourselves to meet God. We prepare ourselves to meet God. He's showing up in power and in glory. And so this is the context of what's going on here. Now, that's not all, but that's a lot. But there's even more that we want to see. And so let's, let's move on. So God doesn't begin with a command. He says, okay, I'm I'm speaking to you. He doesn't begin with a command. He begins with a reminder. And here's his reminder. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, why is that important? It's like, well, hi, I'm Jimmy. No, This, this is important. So let's pick it apart a little bit so we can understand this. What? What God is is doing, God has revealed himself to Moses first. You remember in the wilderness, burning bush experience, God revealed himself to Moses. And when God revealed himself in the burning bush, Moses had a question. Uh, Okay, you want me to go to Egypt? Got it. When I get there and talk to the people, who who should I say sent me? Now again, think the context of the times, multitude of gods. Which one are you? What's your name? Are you the God of my father-in-law Jethro? Whom he says there's just one God. Or are you one of the gods of Egypt who's come to bring me back? Or maybe you're one of the gods of Canaan. Who are you? Perfectly legitimate question. Okay? And so this is God's answer. I am who I am. This is not a riddle. I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Now, let's think about that for a minute because now it says, uh, we just read that, um, that God who, who spoke to them, spoke to the Israelites, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you out of the land of slavery. Uh, who is this God? Moses has given us a clue here. We, we, can, we pick this up. At Mount Sinai, God identified himself as the same God 
who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. And the name that he gave at the burning bush is I am. And I am means that the Lord never changes, that he is eternally in the present tense, and that he is eternally present. Think about these. Think about them. He never changes. Everything we know in life changes, right? Um, I, I noticed that the Aikens had posted something, a, a little recommendation that I'd given to other pastors to go out there, and they, they pulled in a picture to use of me. I've changed. I just, I had to go get a, I, take, I had my first passport 15 years ago. I went to get a new passport. They took the picture. I've changed. Things change, right? Not God. That blows people's minds. God has always been just as he is. He's never gotten any better. He's never gotten any worse. He's eternally the same. More than that, he is eternally in the present tense, I am. It is, you know, God has done things in the past and God will do things in the future, but God is eternally in the present tense so that he can say, I am. Not I was, not I will be, I am. And he is eternally present. He's not off on vacation. He's omnipresent. He's all places at all times. As, as Dr. Smith said, there's nowhere that God, can't go, get, that God can go without bumping into himself. And so this is, when we, when we hear this term, I am, it's, it's not just a simple noun and verb connected together. This is God revealing his character, revealing who he is to the people. He is not defined by time. He is not constrained by time. And he's not contained within time. He is as he always was and always will be. I am. And so when God is speaking, it is I am who is speaking. More than that, he reveals himself as, at Mount Sinai as the same Lord who called Abraham out of the land of Ur of the Chaldees and who gave the promise of a people and a land. He is the God of Isaac, that, that promised child who came to both uh, Abraham and Sarah when they were well past well past childbearing age. And he's a God of Jacob, to whom God gave the name Israel. What he's saying here is, the God who brought you guys out of the land of Egypt is the same God who met Moses at the burning bush and gave him his name. And the same God, the same God that your father Abraham worshipped. No new kid on the block. No, No God come lately. This is God. From Genesis to Revelation, before that and beyond that, he's God. 
And this is a God who is speaking to them from this mountain with fire and smoke and, and trembling of the rock. This is a God who is speaking to them. And, and basically what God is saying is, listen, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm getting ready to give you something that's going to enter us into relationship here. I'm getting ready to give you something. And if, if you're having a little trouble now, just think about what I've done in the past. Just think about my calling Abraham. Just think about my giving Isaac. Just think about uh, taking Jacob and having the children of Israel come out of him. Just think of all, how I brought you out of the land of Egypt, how I delivered you. Just think about that. And all that together should signify to you that I'm worthy of your worship. He's laying the groundwork here for this commandment. This is why the following ten, you need to listen carefully. Now there's one more word in here that is, that is significant. And it's a word we often overlook. I am the Lord, your God. Your God. This is significant. He's not a God. He's not the God. He says, I'm revealing myself to you as your God. At Mount Sinai, what the Lord was doing was establishing a covenant relationship with them. And it was based on that relationship and his love for them that he gives them these commandments. In other words, I love you. I chose you. I want you. It, I, we're in, we're, I'm entering into a relationship with you. Now, based on that, he gives the first of the commandments, and that's what we're going to focus on for the rest of this morning, and then we'll move on uh, to number two and beyond after that. Okay, first of the commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, some people, when they read that, they would look and say, well, that, that must mean that what God is saying is that uh, there are other gods out there, that God is validating the fact that other gods exist. Well, that's not what is being said here at all. The assumption is not that there are other legitimate gods that are going to rival the Lord, but that people believe that there are other gods, and therefore they worship them as such. Are there things that you've ever believed in that really didn't exist? Looking around. I don't want to burst anybody's bubble. Tooth fairy. Maybe. Okay. Things that you believed in and you later found out, oh, that's not, that's not real. Let's just pretend. There are things that people believe in all over this world. That have no basis in reality. Gods that people worship. Philosophies that people adopt. Religions that people adhere to. They have no validity at all. No basis, no reality. For them, it's real. But there is no reality to it. There are no other gods. There weren't in Egypt. There won't be any more in the promised land. Now, how do we know this? Because Scripture buttresses this argument over and over and over again. Let me just pull out four Scriptures very quickly for you. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35. You were shown these things that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides Him, there is no other. 
Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I myself am he, there is no God besides me. Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. And then in John chapter 17. Now this is eternal life that they know you. This is Jesus speaking. That they know you, Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, the only true God. Okay, so what we're seeing now, you run Old and New Testament. There is a mention of other gods, but that's not because there are other gods. It's because people worship other gods who aren't real. And what God is stepping forward to say is, listen, I'm it. This polytheism, this whole mass of gods that people worship, what you need to understand is there is one God. The central tenet of Judaism Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. All right, now, with with that in mind, God says, you will have no other gods before me. Now, what does that mean? The phrase is literally before my face, or as we might say it in more modern terms, in my face. You have no other gods in my face my face. Now, what does that mean? You have no other gods before me. Um, If you're married, then your expectation is that your husband or your wife will have no other person of the opposite sex before you. Okay? There is a preeminence. There is an exclusivity that God says, I'm it. No other gods before me, no other gods besides me. The point is that there is to be no other entity, divine or otherwise, no other entity that takes the rightful place of God. God will broke no rivals. He's not going to have you saying, well, you know what? If, if praying to the Lord doesn't work this week, then maybe next week I'll, I'll go try this. Or I'll go try that. Or I'll go try something else. In other words, the Lord is the center of our lives. He's the center of our hopes. He's the center of our dreams. And he's the center of every decision that we make. Now the Jews, they were were in a culture where there were lots of other gods. We also are in a culture where there are lots of other gods. I know Bible Belt kind of throws off the, the curve a little bit. But if, if you go check it out, depending on whose statistics you use, who, who did the numbers, Hindus have, one counts as 33 million gods. Another count said 330 million gods. And there are even those that say that Hindus have over 100 million gods. That's a lot. You go, okay, well, we can discount them because they've got bunches of gods and we know we're not going to go and worship a statue and ring bells and bring fruit and and those kind of things. Well, what about Islam? They have one God, Allah. Are we supposed to say, well, you know, eh, yeah, all gods are the same, just kind of have different names. Let me, let me give you this challenge. And if you want to, I'll loan you my copy. Read the Koran. Read the Bible. 
and then you come back and tell me they're the same guy. No, they're not. Not at all. And God don't want you, you know, kind of working around the edges, just kind of fudging and saying, eh, you know, well, they may be right. They, you know, this group over here, they, they, they could be right. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be cruel. I'm not trying to be, you know, just a bigot and exclusive. But, but God said, listen, I'm it. Besides me, there is no other God. And so why are you fooling around? Why are you messing around with these other things and pretending that they're gods? They're not. I deserve allegiance. Me and me alone. I am alone on the throne. There is no other. God's trying to get that across to the people because they're in the midst of a culture that says there are tons of, tons of gods they're almost interchangeable parts. God says, that's not true. There's one. And I am the only one who's worthy of worship. Now, when we think about gods, if you went to a dictionary, you'd find a definition that says, you know, a god is an entity or being or a power that is, uh, usually has a lot of power and is worshipped, has followers, those kinds of things. You'll find those kind of definitions of what God is. But I want to give you a layman's definition of God, okay? Here's a layman's definition of God. A God can be defined as anything that has captured your heart, dominates your thoughts, and ultimately affects your decisions. Okay? This is, this is a working definition. It's a practical definition. Not, not a theological definition, not a dictionary definition. This is a practical, everyday, uh, you know, rubber meets the road kind of definition. A God is anything that captures your heart, dominates your thoughts, and ultimately determines your actions. In other words, a God is what is at the center of your life. Remember, think with me. The devout Hindu man circling his God. His God is at the center. Our God's at the center. That's what it means to worship him. He is at the center of our lives. And because he is at the center of our lives, it is the Lord who captures our heart and holds our affections. It is the Lord who dominates our thoughts. We wake up in the morning thinking about, you know, God, thank you for giving me life. Thank you for giving me hope. Thank you for giving me peace. We go to bed at night thanking God that he gave us that day, even if it was a terrible day, even if you hurt all day long, even if you had sorrow, even if you saw terrible things, you go to bed at night saying, God, you gave me that day, and I know it wasn't wasted. For every triumph, we thank God. For every, in the midst of every pain, we thank God. Because I, this is what scripture teaches us. Romans 8, 48. God has taken all that stuff, good, bad, and otherwise. And he's working it together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He's taking all that stuff and he's weaving it together. I'll tell you now, as I've told you a hundred times before, God is far more interested in your character 
than he is in your comfort. Because most of the times, the things that build our character are the things that make us uncomfortable. And so God wants to use those. And God is using those. And so the Lord comes and he has a command, no other gods before me. And we'll, we'll look a little bit at that next week when we look at idolatry. But this is what the Lord says. Jesus said in Matthew twenty two thirty seven, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And in, in Luke uh, 4, 8, it is written, Worship the Lord and serve him only. So I have two challenges for you. First of all, for those of you who are not certain of your salvation, for those of you who are kind of maybe on the edge, for those of you who have doubt, or for those of you who just said, hmm, not ready to take that step. Here's what I need to share with you this morning. There is but one God. And whether you're willing to acknowledge him as God and to worship him in spirit and truth, that is your choice. But your decision has consequences. Your decision has consequences. It was about 15 years ago. Just before I came as pastor here in Greensboro. That Bob Christian had experienced what genuine Christianity is all about having seen it in his wife all those years. He came under conviction. And he went home, and that evening, he asked Brenda, his wife, to pull out the bulletin from that Sunday, which had the plan of salvation in it, and to share that with him. And he received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He became a new man. He became a child of God. He made a decision. Now, Bob was a good man. Bob was a good father. Bob was a good husband. And he was a good friend to so many. He'd done well in business. He'd achieved a great reputation. But I got to tell you, all of that could go right in the toilet and be flushed if he had not embraced Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. That decision, listen, that decision is absolutely the most critical decision in life. Some of you have made that decision. Some of you are teetering on the brink of that decision. Some of you aren't even sure if you've made that decision. I'm going to tell you this morning, out of love, purely out of love, there's one God. And the only way that you can know Him is through His Son, Jesus Christ. The only way that you can have life in him is through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And no one, absolutely no one, nowhere comes to the Father except through me. But you see, Jesus isn't trying to keep people out. Jesus is trying to bring people in. How did he do that? How did he fling open wide the gates of heaven? By dying on a cross for our sins, 
by paying the price for my sins and your sins so that you might be forgiven in him and have his righteousness in yourself. And to invite you, to invite you, to invite you, believe in me and you'll have life. And this morning, there may be some of you in here who need to take that step. You put it off a long time. But today, you're ready to say, I need it. i got to have it. And I'm not leaving here without it. What if you are a believer? You know you're a believer? You're confident in your faith? Well, I've got a little bit of a challenge for you, too. You see, it's not that we have removed God from the throne and placed some lesser God up on a throne or up on a shelf. It's that we've removed God from his throne and we've taken that place for ourselves. It's typically not Allah or Krishna or Shiva or any of those that take God's place for us. It's Jimmy. Push him out of the way. I claim the throne for myself. I want to be Lord of my own life, captain of my own destiny, master of my own fate. How stupid is that? I can't even tell you what the weather's going to be tomorrow. It'll probably rain. I can't tell you what tomorrow holds. I can't tell you what this afternoon holds. How in the world am I going to be Lord of my own life? And there's some of you who have pushed Jesus off the throne and you're a believer. You've trusted in him, but you keep kicking him out. But today, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word, You're ready to say, I need a new start today. I need Jesus to be on the throne of my life. I need the Lord to be number one in my life. And I need to quit trying to be Lord myself. I don't know where you are this morning, but I do know this. That there's rarely a day that goes by that God does not call us to make decisions. There's never a day. And for some... This is your day of decision. This is your moment of decision. This is your time to take that step for your relationship with the Lord, to show an example for your family, to make a new start, a new beginning. So whatever it is God's calling you to do, do it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, the truth of it, the power of it, how it brings us both comfort and conviction. And God, I pray today for those who are struggling with a decision, a decision to embrace Christ or a decision to step away from the throne in their lives and let Jesus be Lord. Whatever their decision, God, I pray that this will be the day, this will be the moment, this will be the time that they will look back on forever and say, that changed my life. 
For this I ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.